welcome back. This is episode 176 of Hubological Highlights. I'm Ben Marshall, and co-hosting, as always, is Tom Major. And this week, we have, I think, one of the more interesting papers that we've done on the podcast in general, because it's one of these wonderful examples of herpetology overlapping with, oh gosh, like so many other fields. We've got a little bit of sort of biogeography and paleoclimate in there. We've got a bit of history and sort of anthropology angles in there and a little bit of um, histography, histography, right? The study of history in there as well. It's a wonderful intersection of lots of different disciplines that does a good job of giving you this sense of this, this world that we're kind of unfamiliar with. Yeah, it's cool. I like it. It's from a journal called Environmental Archaeology as well, yeah. which is pretty cool. I imagine that every paper in this journal is pretty wild and wacky and interesting. It's a fun intersection for sure. And um, yeah, let's introduce the paper. So it's by McBride, Winder and Worcester, 2023. What bit the ancient Egyptians niche modeling to identify the snakes described in the Brooklyn Medical Papyrus, as I said, published in Environmental Archaeology. And this is a team from Bangor University in Wales. So yeah, nice to see these authors. I didn't meet Alicia, but I know Izzy and Wolfgang. Of course, we know Wolfgang. He was both of our supervisor. So yeah, great to see this coming out. And there was also a really cool article in the conversation about it, which is great. Yeah, so we're headed in this paper to ancient Egypt. And uh, we're going to be discussing the Brooklyn Papyrus. So this is a scroll from ancient Egypt. The manuscript is a collection. Ben's losing it. I can't handle the Egypt noise. I, uh... <laughs> I wasn't expecting the uh, the ambiance. I've been transported. Yeah, yeah we got ambiance here, mate. And uh, yeah, so this manuscript, the, the Brooklyn Papyrus, right, was this like ancient scroll from Brooklyn that was discovered in Egypt. Yeah, that annoys me that it's called Brooklyn. It's nothing to do with Brooklyn, <laughs> oh, is it? It's, it's just that like the the first matey who tried to decode it or whatever gave it to the Brooklyn Museum. I didn't read uh, too much. Not into the ancient it, pyramids of Brooklyn, then. That's a different. Sadly, sadly not, sadly not. Yeah, a little bit of a uh, colonial bent on this one. But the Brooklyn Papyrus is itself a really cool thing. It's this collection of sort of descriptions of snakes. So the first part is a description of a bunch of snakes. And the second part is a description of how to treat snake bites in ancient Egypt. It also contains treatments of scorpion bites and spider bites, but we're talking about the snakes. And um Yeah, so this scroll is dated between 660 and 330 BC, so it's old. And a few authors have tried to work out what the snakes are that are being described in the scroll. There's quite a lot of congruence in what people think they might be, but there's also a bit of disagreement. They described 37 different species of snake. It's such a relatable issue, like immediately off the bat, right? We've had discussions about snake bites like in more modern, obviously more modern times, but where we've had sort of contemporary descriptions of snakes with contemporary sort of where they are, what they could possibly be. And there's already ambiguity there. Roll back on, what, two and a half thousand years of sort of missing bits of information and differences in context and a very different language. It's going to be a little bit tricky to work out exactly what's being talked about, right? Like, this is... <laughs> The it's difference it. in time is... That's what makes it cool. ...monstrous, right? Yeah, it's thousands and thousands of years yeah. ago. 
well, it was thousands of years ago. And so, yeah, there's a bit of detective work involved because they're talking about 37 dangerous snake species. But today there's only five dangerous front fanged snake species in Egypt and a few sort of rear fanged species that have the potential to be dangerous to humans. But so there's a lot of detective work required in trying to not only translate and piece together the scroll, but also to work out which species the scroll is actually describing. So there's one which you could say is probably quite easy to work out. One entry was sort of decoded as saying there's a snake which is patterned like a quail and hisses like a goldsmith's bellows and so puff adder's famous for making this like really loud puffing noise so the chances are if it's hissing like a goldsmith's bellows and they're bellowy they're quite sort of puffy snakes yes so it's puff adder <laughs> bitis aretans but they're not all that easy a lot of them take a lot more um decoding and that's why there's this kind of uncertainty but the authors of this paper are talking about the discrepancy in which species are actually there. So, you know, we're going back all this time in the past. There's like supposedly 37 dangerous species of snake. Why is it that there's only five in Egypt now? And they say it's probably because of climatic changes. So the landscape of Egypt has changed pretty drastically in the Holocene. Around sort of 8,500 years ago, monsoon rains would have transformed the Sahara, which was dry, into a grassland. And the Nile Valley would have been this like really nice damp wetland with plenty of rain. And in this kind of wetter historical Egypt, there would have been elephants and giraffes and even soft-shell turtles. However, sort of around 5,300 years ago in the sort of mid-Holocene, the rains shifted south and the area began to dry up. And this likely caused a lot of species to shift their ranges elsewhere. But the authors of this paper were looking to find out. And this work was conducted as part of a master's project by the lead author, Alicia McBride, which is obviously impressive in of itself. We're looking to see whether or not they could work out which species might have been present of these some of these species which were named there using species distribution modelling. So essentially they... Go on, Ben. Before you get into the, the real like guts of the results... I wanted to throw in an additional bit of complexity to working out what the snakes are pertaining to, because you're sort of using the word there and Egypt. But those are very fluid terms. You know, you're talking about the changes of what counts as Egypt over a span of several thousand years, and even the ambiguity of like where these papers came from, from anything from like 600, no, 330 BCE, all the way back to like 1600 BCE sort of mess So that's a long chunk of time that they could be uh, sort of referencing what would count as Egypt, what would actually be worth talking about for people of that time. You know, Egypt is going to be spanning across bits of North Africa at different times, way further south than it is currently, way further east than it is currently. And even, I think it's sort of important to remember that borders and sort of nation state stuff that we have now is not consistent throughout history right so you've got this potentially more fluid edges of what would count as egypt as well so it's not (laughs) my point is there's lots of sort of changes that make it additionally complex to work out whether something should be counted as a possible or not Mm. and you know as you're saying with the climate shifting as well it's kind of tricky i think it's the real killer because every aspect of this is in flux yeah yeah it's very true yeah but i think they were considering the sort of ancient historical area of egypt right at a particular time point when this scroll was they lumped onto the new kingdom as the sort of a generous extent yeah which i think is the way to go so it's sort of maximizing the possibility of snakes they could have 
come in contact with. And I think that does a good job of, well, maybe you're writing for people traveling back and forth between Egypt and other places that are going to be just beyond the sort of borders of what's classically called Egypt. But if you pick a sort of wider extent Egypt at the time, you're going to capture those sort of edge cases as well. Or at least that's the impression I'm getting from the justification of using the sort of new kingdom, wider, bigger Egypt. And I think it makes a lot of sense to pick something like that, something a bit more generous. Mm. And so to work out whether or not they were actually found in this sort of historical area that they'd selected, they looked at 10 different species and they made species distribution models. So these look at the modern range of species. So you feed the model loads of locations where you know that your species is found and then you give it loads of um, climate variables and habitat variables. And it kind of creates an idea of what is tolerable for each species. Yeah, and then it projects envelope, that back right? into the past. It will exist in this envelope, envelope of different climates and conditions yeah so climatic envelope is part of it but this one also kind of builds on that because it has variables of describing the habitat features yes. as well so that's like, like ecotype right that's right yeah yeah so it's pretty thorough and you know with these models you get an idea of what is acceptable to the species then you cast it back in time and you look to see what would have been suitable back when the ancient egyptians were writing this scroll mm -hmm. And they selected 10 species, and these 10 species were no joke. They were like seriously medically significant snake species, which are no longer found in this area of what was historical Egypt. And they found that of those 10, nine were likely actually found in ancient Egypt that are no longer found in modern day Egypt. And like I said, these are snakes with really like big time medical relevance. We're talking about things like the puff adder, night adder, boom slang, black mamba, Moorish viper, blunt nosed viper, and the black necked spitting cobra. So... Essentially, ancient Egyptians had quite a significantly larger amount of potentially deadly snakes living amongst them. And part of that is because they themselves were also enjoying what was probably a much nicer climate at the time. Right. Less dry. But yeah, so I think this paper is really cool because, you know, you start off with this kind of clue from ancient times and then... They kind of merged ancient texts with really like modern cutting edge technology to do with modeling the ranges of animals. Mm -hmm. And they gained quite a few really interesting insights. Um, yeah, so it's sort of an example of how analyzing historic ranges can sort of help us grasp how ancestral ecosystems evolved. And if you kind of have two streams of data, one being these scrolls, which ancient people wrote things about the snakes, and then this kind of second line of evidence, which is the sort of um, historical mapping of species ranges using species distribution models between those two if you have those two kind of congruent lines of data that are giving you the same answer you can sort of infer what was back there with quite a lot of accuracy which right. is really cool it enhances it enhances our understanding of biogeography but also how sort of human wildlife interactions would have occurred with our ancestors which is interesting yeah i think it does we've come with this sort of big chunk of uncertainty with it right because of the layers of uncertainty as you're building building these models because you're using opportunistically collected occurrence data you know this is stuff from like iNaturalist bits of literature of studies being done in certain spots or interesting natural history observations that may have been sort of made and published so you've got a little bit of like funny sampling because like some of these species are much better sampled in terms of where they occur than others you then got this little bit of shakiness of what do you put in a model like this for climate that's quite a hard decision to make and is sort of one of those questions that doesn't necessarily have a correct correct answer i think they had a pretty robust way of going about picking what they were doing here none of this is knocking the choices made it's more just giving people an idea of 
how many steps of uncertainty are sort of involved in, in making these models? Because then your next step is how do you work out how well that model is actually reflecting modern distributions? That's a open question. Then you're working into the hindcasting. So you're taking this and applying it to the climatic variables that have been inferred from either, you know, some sort of other record, some sort of proxy, some sort of climatic model itself, and seeing how the snakes of your model map onto that climate climate model and then running forwards with that. There's a lot of steps for uncertainty, but I think the fact that these sort of all sort of tally up with the historic records and it's... I don't know. It, it feels very satisfying, this, because it's an exploration at the end of the day. It's an exploration into what these historical records could be talking to and that. It's opening up possibilities as opposed to confirming that these were the snakes talked about and I think that that's really endlessly fascinating but I could see this whole thing being done again with slightly different like climatic variables and it's sort of giving a bit of a shift and you know the specifics would change in terms of oh maybe that snake didn't quite make it there but the phenomenal answers I think are going to be pretty damn close to this Mm. Yeah, I want to read more environmental archaeology papers. I might have to set up a Google alert for reptile or something every time this is, every time a journal, this journal right. publishes something to do with reptiles. We need to be on it. Yeah, but yeah, really cool, fun to read about ancient Egypt as well. And um, yeah, ancient Egyptians, basically ancient have. Egyptian herpetologists, right? In some regards, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Finding snakes, yeah, recording what they're looking like, recording sort of symptoms and potential solutions for snake bite. It is already a marrying of herpetology and like medical science of the time, which is fascinating, right? <laughs> yeah, it's cool. And the pictures of the scroll itself, it's a really awesome thing. It's beautiful. The handwriting's cool. All right. Well, should we move on? We're moving a little bit further south. We're staying in Africa for our species of the bye week. So this is a paper by Lietki, Malonza, Wasonga, Muller and Loder, 2023. A new genus and species of toad from Mount Kenya illuminates the East African montane biogeography, published in the Zoological Journal of the Linnaean Society. So yeah, Mount Kenya. We're in Kenya, East Africa. I've been to this mountain, Ben. Oh yeah? Although, See yeah, these frogs? back in 2014, I didn't see a single amphibian, mate. I saw... A few chameleons, which is pretty sweet. That's more what I was after. I was yeah, on a big chameleon flex at that time. Yeah, which was pretty cool. We saw some Von Honel's chameleons. Didn't see any of the like crazy top of the mountain endemic ones that live in the heather and just like survive sub-zero temperatures and are really small and spiky looking. But we saw, yeah, we saw some cool chameleons. But the mountain itself, Mount Kenya... It's part of the East African Rift Mountains, some of which are very old. So some of them can be over 25 million years old, such as the Ethiopian highlands and other parts of Kenya. But others are relatively young. So Mount Kenya is only thought to be about 3 million years old. And um, we're describing what well, they've described here, a new species of toad from Mount Kenya. What should we do first? Should we talk about the biogeography or should we talk about the species and then talk about the biogeography? Let's talk about the species first, shall we? Yes. I think you've got to open it with the name. Yeah. The Kenyan Volcano Toad. Yeah, the Kenyan Volcano Toad is the common name, which is absolutely awesome. So yeah, they've called it Kenya Phrynoides Volcani. Kenya Phrynoides Volcani, which is or Vulcani, obviously I guess, yeah. really cool. And um, so yeah, it's a brand new genus and a brand new species. So both of these words are new. The generic name is derived from the words Kenya, which is obviously a reference to the country, and the mountain. 
from which the name from the country was originally derived. And Phrynoides just means toad-like. So it is like yeah, a toad. Toad-like yep, from confirmed. Kenya. <laughs> and then the species epithet, Vulcani, is a reference to the recent volcanic origins of Mount Kenya, which is the only place where this species is known from. And it essentially just means of the volcano. So yeah, we got a toad here of the volcano and it's toad-like from Kenya. So extremely descriptive name. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and just the idea of a volcano toad is just a really cool concept. Like, regardless of its abilities to survive in lava, I think it's amazing. Sounds more like a Pokemon. But yeah, Kenya Phrynoides Vulcani. And the reason that this was a bit of a surprise is because, like I say, Mount Kenya is very young. It's only 3 million years old, which is young for a mountain. But this species of toad is estimated to have diverged from its closest relative about 20 million years ago. So the toad is actually 17 million years older than the mountain on which it's found as an endemic species. So you're saying these toads were roaming around and then the ground sort of rose up around them and they were trapped upon this mountain, this volcano. I think what's more likely, and according to Dr. Simon Loder, who was the supervising author of this paper, is actually quoted as saying, many of Kenya's mountains are volcanic or geologically comparatively new. So to find an ancient lineage that has persisted for millions of years is mind-blowing. It's a conundrum to figure out how it got here. He goes on to say, while we're not certain, it seems like it might once have had a wider distribution. Mm -hmm. And as the climate changed over the past tens of millions of years, it tracked the tropical forest as it moved, with the toad's final destination being the top of Mount Kenya. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. It probably didn't first appear here, but it was like, this was the best place and it found itself But we can't discount the possibility that it created the volcanoes. We can't. That's absolutely right. We can't (laughs) discount any kind of possibility that it's actually some kind of Uruk-eye toad and (laughs) it was forged in the fires. But more likely, it's just been traveling around the forests for millions of years, just keeping it real, like trying to stay alive as a species, moving moving around the forests, demonstrating flexibility. Yeah, pretty amazing. It is quite long-legged. It is quite It does look like a bit of a mover. It does look a mover. They've got both pictures and drawings in this paper, which is quite nice. But it's sort of a, a mottled green toad, quite bumpy. But yeah, long, long limbs, big, strong, powerful forelimbs yeah. as well. But, you know, we really know absolutely nothing about this species. They've only ever found one, one male. It was caught in a pitfall trap, so it fell into a hole. They don't even actually know Not that good at exactly what... <laughs> yeah, no, well, I mean, pitfall <laughs> traps are designed with the intention to not let things out. Yeah, so yeah, but you know, it's a habitat where there's like leaf litter, moss-covered tree trunks, fallen logs, it's foresty, lots of mist, lots of rain. I'm guessing it's quite high up on the mountain. Mount Kenya's got really interesting altitudinal zonation, so mm. as you go up the mountain, you you travel through these layers of um, different habitats it starts off as sort of like dry and scrubby and then you have some bamboo and then you have this like really lush forest which it sounds like is where this frog is or this toad is from and then above that you have this like sort of high altitude heather 2396 meters so yeah that's pretty high up the mountain so yeah that must be in the sort of cloudy cloudy forest near the top but yeah really cool species Mm -hmm. and it's really thrown a spanner in the works about what african herpetologists well african zoologists really thought about how Mount Kenya was connected to the sort of surrounding mountains with forests. This kind of suggests that actually there may have been a bit more connectivity than was previously thought. So yeah, we're still learning a lot about the biogeography of these areas, which is kind of refreshing and cool. And yeah, fascinating, really. Yeah. Ancient, ancient lineage of toad. Maybe there's more to be discovered on Mount Kenya, who knows, or other surrounding mountains. But yeah, Kenya Phrynoides Vulcani. 
I would say this is probably in the top five names we've ever had on the podcast. It is right up there. It is right up there. It's a bit of a winner. I'm desperately trying to find how actually large it is for about 45 milliliters. Milliliters? We'll try that again. Millimeters. 45 millimeters. That's small. And mostly leg. Thumb-sized. Thumb-sized. But there we go. Brand new species. Glorious. Pretty awesome. Have you got any other business this week? I do not have any other business for this week. No. Okay, so I just wanted to quickly mention that we've put the podcast on YouTube now. So if you're a YouTube user, you can find us on there. They might be a wee bit delayed on YouTube, but other than that, they should be there. Yep. And we have... I also just wanted to mention Ross McGibbon. He's doing his calendars again this year. Ross McGibbon, the wildlife photographer. Ben, I have your copy here. Here it is. They're glorious. You see it? I just... I mean, these things are awesome, man. I love it. I just wanted to show you this one particular picture of a death adder. Let me just find it here. Yeah, look at this bad boy. Damn. Oh, with the moonlight. Oh. Moonlit death oh. adder. Yeah, pretty cool. Coffin Bay, South Australia. Anyway, so every year, Ross McGibbon, who is an absolutely fantastic reptile um, photographer, takes a bunch of pictures of Australian wildlife, puts them in a calendar, sells them online. You can find the link in our show notes. And 25% of the proceeds are donated to the Royal Flying Doctors Service and the Global Snake Bite Initiative. So they share the 25%. They're limited edition, only 500 copies. We have two of them. So yeah, if you want to get one. (laughs) Yeah. So yeah, thanks, Ross. And uh, yeah, check them out. Really good cause as well. And you just get a cool calendar with plenty of space to write your happenings of life which is great i've got one in my office so yeah i don't have anything else marvelous if you want to get in touch with us you can herp highlights at gmail.com if you want to ask us a question or if you want to correct something we've said that's wrong or just have an opinion that you want to voice get in touch we're on social media yeah i think that's that's it more or less all there is to say yeah, social media, find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, etc, etc. And yeah, we're hoping to get back on the regular recordings now. We've had an absolutely manic period for both of us. Uh, lots of travelling and lots of horrible... Chaos. Too much work, but <laughs> we're getting there. But yeah, thanks for listening. Yeah, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.